welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we are here at Harvard again for the year. And one of the things that's really cool to me about being in the United States is the opportunity to explore American history in a way that I never really had the opportunity. I've taken American history courses and taught a couple of American history courses, but being here with people who know the material a lot better than I do, it's been a lot of fun to get to know the issues a little more in depth. And today's guest is one of those examples of someone who knows a lot more than I do and studies something that not only did I not know a lot about, an individual who I had never heard of. So here we go. Joining us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Paul Cahan. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, we're, we're very excited to have you because you have just written a new book entitled The Bank War, Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the Fight for American Finance. So congratulations on that first. Thank you. I appreciate it. So before we get into the book itself, uh, I want to talk a little bit about just your overall style of writing because you are known as more of a popular historian, even though you do teach in universities, uh, you mentioned just before we started recording, you are bi-coastal, if you will, teaching out in California and also in Pennsylvania. And looking at what you write about, it's a very diverse subject matter. You've written about penitentiaries. You've written about the Homestead Strike. You've written about Lincoln's Minister of War. So for you, approaching these things, what what is the big difference in popular history and writing popular history versus the academic stuff, which what is what you obviously started in, given that you have a doctorate? Yeah, so, I mean, that's a great question, and it's, you know, one of those uh, things that, you know, academics love to flog ourselves about the fact that we don't connect with the public, and then we do nothing to connect with the public. And I think that, you know, there is a real hunger for history, you know, in the United States and other places. You know, you go to any bookstore, they're going to have a massive... Uh, you know, history, you know, section, you know, you go for Father's Day, there's tables, oh, buy a gift for dad. But there is a a disconnect on the one hand between the books that the general public ends up reading and all of the really interesting high quality work that goes on in universities. And I think that the bridge between, you know, that high level academic stuff and the more popular stuff is my teaching. You know, so often, I have students come to me and say, you know, where can I find out more about this? You know, where can I get a better understanding of these events? And, you know, you can't put a monograph, you know, published by a university press in their hands. It's it's not where they are. Um, And in fact, the Bank War book grew out of a discussion that I had shortly after teaching a lesson on the on Jacksonianism and, you know, what the Jacksonians were all about. And I did a a few minutes on the bank war. And after the class, a student came up to me and said, where can I find out more about this? And the last book that was written on the bank war was 50 years old. Um, this was in, I think, the spring semester of 2012 or 2013. And I, you know, I said, oh, there's this book out there, if you can get a hold of it. Uh, and he said, oh, well, you should write a book about it. And at that moment, I was, I was knee deep and just finishing up the homestead strike. Um, so I wasn't looking for new projects, but, you know, like any good project, this one found me. And, um, you know, I very much wrote it with 
my students in mind because I think it not only speaks to some important enduring debates, but that as citizens, we have a responsibility for sort of understanding how we got to the present. And I think the bank war is a really good starting point for understanding that. And with the rhetoric on both the Republicans and the Democratic side in this presidential nominating season, it turns out that I am super relevant. Yeah, and especially, you know, coming out of 2008, and, and that was such a big deal. And, and the movies like the, or the first, I guess, the book, the Michael Lewis book, The Big Short, and then the movie, yeah. it's really one of those things that a lot of people are upset or, or feel as though the financial system has wronged them in some way. In a lot of ways, it has, but very few people know exactly how it works. And, and I would include myself in that. I'm not by any means an expert in the financial system. So having something to put it all in historical context is, is really interesting. And you mentioned that a student came up and said, where can I, I find a book about this? And, and you discovered that there really wasn't one. Mm-hmm. It, it's fun that you say, you know, yeah, a good project falls in your lap. And has that really been your experience? Is that for you, you're trying to find material for students and you're personally frustrated or or find that there isn't stuff and has that really been the guiding presence for you or, or sort of the guiding motivation to your writing to a certain extent um you happen you noted earlier that uh i got my start writing about prisons my first book is a narrative history of eastern state penitentiary in in philadelphia uh, my hometown which was in its time world renowned for its very unique system of inmate rehabilitation and what happened was I ended up getting a job when I was in grad school uh, as a docent at Eastern State Penitentiary. And then what I realized was no one had written about the history of teaching programs, educational programs in prisons. So I said, oh, this will be a perfect dissertation topic. You know, here I am working at this prison. I'll have time to research it. You know, so I, I, I undertook that as my dissertation. But what I quickly found out was there was no good single volume beginning to end history of Eastern State Penitentiary. You know, if you needed to know who the warden was in 1845, there was no good way to find that. If you needed to know, you know, what the, you know, work requirements for inmates in 1906 were, there was no good way to find that. And so I actually took six or seven months off writing my dissertation to write that first book, Eastern State Penitentiary History, largely so that I would have a desk reference for them writing my dissertation. And it was a very useful exercise. But again, it it was one of those things that sort of fell into my lap. I think, you know, in both ways, both projects sort of fell into my lap. Um, And one of the lessons that I've learned from that is to sort of keep my eyes open for places where important events aren't being talked about or important individuals aren't really being discussed. Um, But I also have a, a, a real passion for state and local history. Um, and that's really where, you know, if you look at all of my books, in some way, shape, or form, they deal with events in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. So there is a very much a local component to my work as well. But yeah, I, I've been fortunate to have these projects just sort of land in my lap. And we should know, too, I mean, it's it's the number of books you have, given the, the breadth of your career, is really quite remarkable because, I mean, it's not like you got your PhD in 1985 or anything. No, uh, you're a relatively recent graduate and you have all these books. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's it's quite remarkable and quite impressive. 
And I, I'm just wondering for you, what is that process like? I mean, you say you took seven months off to do that first book as sort of a desk reference sort of thing. But generally, what is that process for you in being able to turn around the material a lot faster than academics tend to do? Well, I think that it's important to recognize, you know, on the one hand, yeah, I do have a high output, but I stand on the shoulders of giants. and I make really, really effective use of other people's work in the form of monographs, in the form of articles, in the form of, you know, published sources. You know, one of the nice things about working in U.S. history as opposed to medieval European or, you know, other less studied uh, areas or, or, you know, eras is that there's a lot of published material. You know, ja- Andrew Jackson's papers have all been published and indexed. Martin Van Buren's are available on microfilm, and there is a fairly comprehensive index available. So, you know, it's not as if these projects come entirely out of whole cloth. Federal government in this country has spent millions of dollars digitizing local newspapers and making them keyword searchable. And that's been a real boon to researching things like the Homestead Strike. I make very, very effective use of all of these materials that 10 or 15 years ago simply weren't available. But that being said, you know, I try to commit myself to writing a thousand or 1500 words a day. Uh, my next book, which will be out in July, is a, is a biography, as you mentioned, of, of Lincoln's first Secretary of War, a guy by the name of Simon Cameron. And I started writing that at the end of the spring semester in 2014 and basically committed myself to being in my office four or five hours a day, you know, writing a thousand, fifteen hundred. At one point I was up to about three thousand words a day. And then in the evenings coming back out to my office and doing the editing and all of those sorts of things. But it's, it's a combination of just putting your butt in a seat and, and making it happen and making very, very effective use of the materials that are already out there. Right, because it's not like it's unprecedented, sort of what you're doing. I mean, no. not to diminish it, but like the, the popular historians that are very successful in the United States do tend to have a very high output. I'm thinking of the Doris Kearns, Goodwins mm-hmm. of the world, that they're able to, to write books quickly, but they also have resources available to them in the form of you know, assistants, uh, researchers, sorts of those sorts of added benefits that allow them to work the way that they work. Now, granted, they have a lot of pulls on their time in terms of media and going around and doing various speaking engagements, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But given that output, you, you're sort of in that style. Well, I, I appreciate you. Uh, I mean, I, I very much admire uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's work. I mean, her particularly her book on Lincoln's cabinet team of rivals uh, really provided a jumping off point for, you know, my own biography of Simon Cameron. And yeah, I mean, it would be lovely to get a book contract with Simon and Schuster and, you know, get a five, you know, a five or six figure advance and just be able to do this on a, uh, you know, a fairly, you know, consistent basis. In general, I would say that, you know, if you know what you're looking for, terms of mid-level popular presses like Westholm. Westholm's been very good to me. They're the ones that brought out the bank war. Uh, I have a contract with them to do a, a narrative history of Ulysses S. Grant's presidency. And, you know, they have the resources 
to make it possible for me to not teach a, a class that I might otherwise have to teach. And that's time that I can then use for writing. That's time that I can use for editing. But it is a struggle and, you know, there's no doubt about it. And I think that you're always hoping that with the next book, you know, you'll get picked up by those bigger presses because I do think it, that reaching out to a broader audience is important. You know, I do all of my own marketing. As you know, I contacted you. I, you know, when I set up an in-store event or do a media event, it's, it's me showing up because I've called ahead and said, Hey, can we do this? So, you know, I, I would say that anyone who's interested in, in writing popular history, there is a market for it. Uh, I don't know that you're going to make a huge amount of money and you're going to spend far more time marketing yourself than you are actually writing. So, but yeah, and that's the part that, that I was sort of impressed by when, when looking at the website, right? You have this, the thing of appearances and based on the fact that you contacted me directly, it was clear that it, it's not like you had a publicist who, who's setting all this up. No. And for me, it's, it's really kind of fun that, well, one, that the sometimes when you get emails saying, Hey, can I be on your show? You know, sometimes they're coming from, you know, the middle of nowhere and it's people you've never heard of. But it, it, so, you know, I, I saw it and I Googled you up and, and I saw that it was this sort of a legit thing that you were doing, which I, I thought was pretty cool. But you're right to, to say that that's, that's the thing that is so underappreciated and how much time it takes. I haven't done a lot of stuff with press and promotion outside of the show, I guess, but I've gone on the CBC a few times to talk about my research and every time it's been me emailing them and saying, Hey, this is kind of an important date. This is sort of an interesting angle that is relevant to today. And then them saying, okay, why don't you come on the show? Like, it's not like they're reaching out to me. No. And in part because I'm junior and you know, nobody really knows who I am yet, but that is so more, so much more time consuming than I thought it would be. And you're right. The writing in and of itself is time consuming, but getting people to know about it takes like so much more time and effort and is a lot more frustrating than the writing process because there's so many more walls that you run into and people not responding to emails or people saying no. Like it's so difficult and can be demoralizing that I really appreciate the effort that you have to put into this not only to write, but then to get people to know about it. And when you look at, say, your Amazon page or the, the Amazon pages of your books, the responses are all very positive, but I'm struck by the number of responses to them. Oh, sure. Well, and that's one of the things that you have to do is you have to, you know, one of the, when I graduated from college, the first job I had was I was managing an accounting department at a mid-level printing company. And there were maybe a dozen or 15 employees, a large portion of which were longtime sales people. And so I got to know a little bit about business to business sales. And one of the things that they really hammered into me was you don't get an order unless you ask. And so you need to, if you're going to market yourself, if you're going to market your writing, you have to abuse, disabuse yourself of any belief that you uh, can be shy about it, that you can be subtle about it. You have to come out and, and ask people, Hey, in addition to purchasing this book, would you mind going on Amazon and rating it? Would you mind going on Goodreads and rating it? Uh, I did a, an in-store event at a Barnes and Noble last weekend. And when you, you know, come and I sign your book, one of the things that I stick in there is a flyer for my next book with a discount code and my business card. And I flat out ask people, 
Hey, would you mind going on Amazon and rating it? Hey, would you mind liking me on Facebook, following me on Twitter? Because that's the only way that you then build a base to then keep growing. And if you're not willing to ask people to do those things, if you're if you're squeamish about asking people to do those things, then you're going to labor in obscurity for your entire career. Right, and it's and it is the hardest thing in the world to do, especially for younger people. I think. Oh sure. Uh, it's just intimidating and it's scary, but the more you do, and I'm discovering this just myself, the more you do it. Sure, people are still going to say no, and there's still going to be roadblocks. But I'm I'm surprised at how often the reception is positive. Well, I think it's Dale Carnegie that talks about how much people like to help other people, and you know, particularly if they've enjoyed the book. You know, there's this sort of I think perspective out there that history is you know 99% of history is boring, and so if people then put you in the category of the 1% that's really interesting, they want to tell their friends, they want to tell their significant others, they want to help you um, get that message out there because on the one hand there is this very negative perception about how history is written, and on the other hand there's this great enthusiasm for history. You know, when academic historians lament historical knowledge among the general public, you know, I think that that cuts both ways. You know, there is a cable station that's devoted to history. PBS runs tons of history. So there is a real hunger out there, and I think that we as academics really need to reorient ourselves to try and engage with it, to make sure that the what's getting out there is high-quality stuff. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree with you. And the one area that I think we struggle with in Canada is this notion that we don't have as big a market, this sort of economy, economies of scale thing, that you know, Doris Kearns Goodwin doesn't ex- really exist in Canada. I mean, you could say Jack Ranstein to a certain extent, but he's, I think, a little more polarizing than she is. Mm-hmm. And I think internally for a lot of historians in Canada, we struggle with that. And I, I don't think it's necessarily that the market isn't there because in the past we've seen that the market is there. It's just maybe not at the same scale and maybe not with printed monographs and there's a lot of really good public history stuff that that is going on, and this notion that history is boring. I, I think we're starting to turn that corner, but you're right in saying that there's a lot more we can do coming out of the academy to be more accessible, to make history more interesting, and to, to get people interested, because you're absolutely right that there is a market for it, people are, are hungry for it, and when it is done properly the results are really quite astonishing. Oh, I agree. I mean, you know, obviously I'm more familiar with, with, you know, the literature on U.S. history, but someone like David McCullough, who, you know, I've heard poo-pooed in in graduate seminars, has introduced millions of people to a forgotten founding father and opened up a world, uh, you know, an, an entree point to the American War of Independence that those people probably wouldn't have had. And so I think he should be commended, not... You know, and I've read many of his books, and I've never seen anything that I thought was questionable or was subpar. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I very much aspire to reach that level of audience and sort of share what I know and my perspective on things. You know, a lot of times I think people think popular means middle of the road. I think, you know, as you've having read The Bank War, you know that it takes a very definite perspective and it doesn't. I don't think I pull my punches uh, when it comes to who I see as responsible for those events. 
De- definitely, yeah. It doesn't mean narrative or, or whatever. Yeah, like, I mean, it could be narrative, but it doesn't have to be sort of like, well, this happened on this day, then this happened on this day, right? right. Like, that, that's not what popular history is. <laughs> um, no. So you, you mentioned the forgotten peoples uh, of the past that, that are starting to be studied. And so let's get into the bank war, because there sure. is one of these people who I did not know about until you emailed me, and I looked into this book because... And again, like I mentioned, I've taught American history, uh, never a survey, so never this sort of stuff, but I've taught pre-Civil War stuff, and I'd never heard of this guy, Nicholas Biddle. He's a really fascinating guy involved in a lot of stuff. So just just if you could give us a bit of a background on Nicholas Biddle, who was this guy, and maybe why don't we know more about him? Sure. Nicholas Biddle was the son of a wealthy Philadelphia family. Uh, his parents were Federalists when Pennsylvania, when Philadelphia was the uh, uh, nation's capital and when Washington and Adams were president. So, you know, they sort of moved in, if not presidential circles, certainly in circles with people who knew the presidents. He was incredibly well-educated and he ends up, you know, he ends up being a minister to Europe, uh, to, I, I believe it's England, where he meets James Monroe. And, and, you know, future president James Monroe sort of becomes a patron for Biddle. Biddle ends up editing the journals of Lewis and Clark. He gets, uh, he comes back to the United States. He ends up serving on the, uh, board of directors of the Bank of the United States, Second Bank of the United States, even though he really doesn't know anything about economics or finance at that point, he throws himself into the topic, becomes a leading expert on uh, economic theory and economic policy, and eventually ascends to the presidency of the Bank of the United States. And in a lot of ways, he is exactly what you want in a public servant. He is nonpartisan. He believes in the public good, um, you know, and he is willing to compromise for the greater good. And I think that the reason the American public hasn't really heard about Nicholas Biddle, I think there are a couple reasons. One is we don't like losers, and ultimately Biddle loses the bank war. For everything that happens, Jackson comes out a clear winner. And in a lot of ways, when historians write the history of Jackson's presidency, they see the bank war as a feather in his cap. You know, it's the consensus is he won the bank war. The other thing is, you know, shortly after Biddle leaves the presidency of the Bank of the United States, he ends up dying. And I think that that coupled with a pretty ignominious and public defeat ends up damning him to the ash heap of history in a lot of ways. He becomes the foil against which Andrew Jackson wins. Right, so he doesn't really have the chance to get that sort of second act. He doesn't, no. And it's funny because, you know, very few people, I I didn't even know this until I sat down and wrote the book. You know, in 1840, he was seriously considered as the Whig presidential candidate. I mean, there were movers and shakers in the Whig party who were saying, you know what, the guy that we need to put in the White House is Nicholas Biddle, because he is nonpartisan. He is, you know, recognized as a publicly spirited individual. We need, and we need a decisive rebuke to Andrew Jackson. And what better way to rebuke Jackson and the Jacksonians is to elect Nicholas Biddle president in 1840. Now, that doesn't end up happening for a variety of reasons, 
But it's astonishing that a guy could be at that level and then almost totally disappear from history. Yeah, it really is, because by no means do I know everyone who's ever been nominated for president, but someone like that involved in the National Bank, you would think they would have a higher profile historically. But that also leads me to ask about the idea of a national bank, because when you think about national bank, a national bank in the United States, I think most people who are familiar with the subject tangentially, as I would say I am, think immediately of Alexander Hamilton, and then don't take it much further than that. Sure. Uh, so, so why do we have this fascination with Hamilton, the creation of a national bank, and then? To me, I didn't even know there was a second national bank. Forget Nicholas Biddle, the idea of a second national bank. That was something else I didn't really know about. You know, we're so familiar with the story of Hamilton, and this is even before the Broadway musical, that people knew who Alexander Hamilton was. Mm -hmm. And yet, once that first 20-year term of the bank ends, there's not that much discussion of it, at least in the literature that I've read about the mid-early uh, part of the 19th century and yet it, it's clearly a very important institution nationally. Well, I think one of the things is that history, as I said earlier, historians like winners, right? They like the guys that win the battles. And when you look at Washington's presidency, Hamilton is the big winner. Very early on, there is a debate between the factions of Washington's cabinet. And here I'm talking about the faction headed by Hamilton and a faction headed by Jefferson over all of these vague things in the Constitution. How are we going to interpret this document? Is it going to be strictly what it says in the document or are we going to take a much more sort of flexible view of things? And Hamilton wins the day by convincing Washington on a philosophical level to take a more flexible view and then runs with that by constructing a totally ingenious plan for laying the groundwork for uh, American recovery after the War of Independence. And part of that recovery involves creating a, a, a national bank, the first of the Bank of the United States, which Hamilton models on the Bank of England which is not a bank like we think of banks. You know, we think of banks as the place you go, oh, you go get your mortgage, you get your car payment, you write checks. That's not what the Bank of the United States is supposed to be. What the Bank of the United States is supposed to be is that portion of the government that collects the federal government's revenue and pays its bills. And, you know, as an aside, because it's doing those things, it exercises some regulatory control over the very few state banks that are in existence. And I think when, when Hamilton comes up with this plan in, in the early 1790s, there are like three state banks in existence. Most people don't have anything to do with banks. And, you know, it's Hamilton's plan fits into this vacuum that's created by the Constitution, which allows the federal government to coin money. It can take precious metal and turn it into coins, but doesn't really allow the federal government directly to print money. And so Hamilton says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We need someone to pay our bills. They'll be the ones that'll print money. And it's, it's a really brilliant scheme. And through some manipulation, through some strong arming, basically through Washington putting his prestige behind this bank, uh, it gets passed through Congress 
Washington signs it into law and the Bank of the United States is granted a 20-year charter from 1791 to 1811. Hamilton comes out the big winner. Fast forward 20 years down the line and Hamilton is dead. He gets shot in 1804. The Federalist Party has essentially been destroyed by Jefferson's election in 1800. James Madison, who had opposed the second bank, or excuse me, the first bank at its creation, is now president, and he takes the opportunity to basically not recharter the bank. He essentially lets the first bank's charter expire, and the United States has no central bank. And I think that once you begin moving away from the Washington presidency, once you begin moving away from these charismatic characters like Hamilton, you know, we tend, you know, interest in these events drops precipitously. And, you know, shortly after Madison lets the bank's charter lapse, he dec- he gets Congress to declare war, the War of 1812, which is this sexy military event, you know, and I think that it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, at least for us in, in Canada, I mean, the War of 1812 is depending on who you ask, could be considered a seminal moment. So, Oh, yeah, totally. So I mean, it's something that we would be very familiar with. But w- with respect to the, the banking, I mean, it seems as though the war would precipitate the need to really have a strong central bank f- to pay the bills. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is where, you know, it's funny because when uh, the History Channel did a documentary based on Joe Ellis's book, uh, Founding Brothers, they interviewed a leading historian who I think is at Yale, and I can't remember her name, but she, she made the point that, you know, it's not a sexy thing to be the guy that's responsible for the nation's money. It's not a sexy thing to be the guy that pays the bills. You know, Hamilton sort of overcomes that sort of nerdy, wonkish image by, you know, being Alexander Hamilton. But when you get to the War of 1812, you know, you have Albert Gallatin as the Secretary of the Treasury. He is the furthest furthest thing from sexy. And when historians have written the history of uh, the War of 1812, they've tended to focus either on what goes on on the battlefields, which are an unmitigated disaster for the United States, with the exception of the Battle of New Orleans, or the politics of the war. And I think, again, the bank, which is this, which can be construed as this incredibly complex an opaque institution, I think it becomes easy for historians to just say, and, oh, yeah, yeah, they needed a bank, so they rechartered it, and, you know, here we go. Uh, I don't think it gets the kind of play in the histories of the War of 1812 that it really should. But had it not been for that war, Madison would have never been forced to recharter the bank. And, and he recharters it then for another 20 years. Like, why not just say it's almost like really- a... like the. You know, the, the equivalent of a War Measures Act and say, well, we need this during the war. Like, if he was so opposed to it, why not just say, we need this to help administer the war, and then we can revisit it whenever the war is over? Why does he have to go with a 20-year charter? Well, because, you know, by the... So, Madison is really weakened by the war in a lot of ways. Politically, he's kind of... He takes a beating. And in a lot of ways, there's a new generation of congressmen who are coming in who are sort of eyeing the presidency. I mean, this is the moment where guys like Henry Clay, guys like John C. Calhoun are sort of emerging as the next generation of leaders. And I think to a certain extent, you know, they forced the Madison administration 
not to, you know, just create this as a stopgap measure. But the War of 1812 is, is a series of ironies. And one of the ironies is the war is over and is over for more than a year by the time that Madison gets around to signing the bill chartering the Second Bank of the United States. So you could argue, hey, you know, why does, why does Madison even sign this bill at all? The war is, is, is gone at that point. Right. I think that much like Jefferson, Madison had these ideological beliefs that were constantly running headlong into reality and that forced him to sort of grudgingly do things that he might not otherwise have wanted to do. And that's really the Second Bank of the United States. Uh, I think he signs the bill in large part because his hand is being wound around his back. He doesn't want it. He doesn't believe that it, you know, on some level, he doesn't believe it's constitutional. But on the other hand, he doesn't want the headache. He doesn't want the fight with Congress, which clearly recognizes the need for a bank. And so he ultimately capitulates and signs the bill. Just politically, that seems interesting that, I mean, it's done in, in after the war. And yet doesn't that line up with an election cycle? So there is an election in 1816. Uh, Madison runs for his second term, wins his second term. And I think that, you know, again, politically, he needs to line up support. Madison is probably the most philosophically brilliant of the founding fathers, with the exception of Jefferson. But he's probably the least politically savvy of them. Mm. He's not an impressive guy. You know, in a lot of ways, he rides Jefferson's coattails into the presidency. And by the time that he's become president, the the Jeffersonian party is, has absorbed most of the Federalists. So these guys that were, to quote Lyndon Johnson, outside the tent pissing in are now inside the tent. The problem is they're still pissing in and they're pissing on Madison in a lot of ways, you know, and so winning that second term does involve compromises, particularly given how disastrous the War of 1812 had been. So if we fast forward then, because it's another 20-year charter, and we get to, you know, we skip over the Monroe Doctrine and all this, and we get to Andrew Jackson, who I've always said, out of all the presidents, if you were going to have a party, like just like a to Saturday night and you want to have just a rage of a party, you should probably get Andrew Jackson. Invite <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Jackson to your next kegger. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, I mean, because the story of, you know, when he won and they he and his buddies all basically tore apart the White House, like that's kind of a fun little thing oh, about Andrew right. Jackson. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Jackson has all these kinds of stories. The problem is like these Animal House type shenanigans uh-huh. are in most cases the guys surrounding Jackson. Jackson is cranky. He's old. He's <laughs> constantly sick. He's walking around with at least two bullets in his body. There are all these great stories, but I think that in a lot of cases they're great despite him, not because of okay. him, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. Um, He's sort of the guy who's going along with it, doesn't really want to be there. Right. He's the, he's the, you know, belligerent guy that two beers in is, you know, swinging a broken beer bottle at you for, you know, being an Eagles fan or something. Like, <laughs> this is not, this is not the kind of guy that you would feel comfy cozy kicking back with, having a few drinks and like, oh, what crazy thing is Andrew Jackson going to do? Well, the crazy thing he might do is grab a rifle and start shooting at people. 
you know, I I don't know that I would want to invite him to my next kegger. Okay, um, so he's more maybe more a guy you'd want to watch on a reality show. Oh, totally. Yeah. Him and Flava Flav. I mean, my God, that is that's comic gold right there. <laughs> So so he's the president, and what is his big issue? Because I mean, because obviously the the bank war is between you know Jackson and the bank. So where is Jackson coming from, and where is his opposition to the bank? What is that motivated by? That's a very good question. And here you have to know a little something more about Jackson. Jackson is incredibly vindictive. He doesn't see the world as driven by you know, large impersonal forces that just the little guy gets screwed because that's just what happens. He believes that if there someone is getting screwed, then it's because someone is doing the screwing. And Jackson always wants to get a hold of the guy who's doing the screwing and just strangle him. So that's part of Jackson right there. More specifically, Jackson has some financial reverses in 1819. There is really uh, the first nationwide panic slash depression in 1819. Jackson had been speculating in land, and as a result of some economic uh, reversals among his partners, he ends up holding the bag in a lot of ways. And again, he doesn't see this as large and personal economic forces that, you know, we have a boom and bust cycle, you just happen to get caught by the bust. He sees, he goes looking for, well, who screwed me? Who is responsible for this? And from Jackson's perspective, it's the banks generally and the Bank of the United States in particular. Remember, the bank had been rechartered in 1816. It had been in operation in 1819. And seeing that there was this speculative bubble, the bank tried to pop the bubble in a very ham-handed way. And ultimately, rather than letting the air out gradually, it pops it very abruptly and really contributes to an economic collapse that burns a lot of people, Jackson included. Jackson concludes from this that all banks are scams, but that the Bank of the United States is a particular scam because unlike those other banks, it has a federal charter and it is the only bank in the United States with a federal charter and with the special privileges that come along with that. So Jackson says, we've got to do something about the Bank of the United States, but it's not entirely clear how much of a priority doing something about the Bank of the United States is. It's not entirely clear what he wants to do, he he's given to eruptions of anger where he'll just say these crazy things. And then in more temperate moments, he'll kind of back away from them. So you're never quite sure, particularly during Jackson's first term, what, if anything, he actually intends to do with the bank. You add to that a, you know, he's a pretty duplicitous guy. He knows how to play the political game. He says one thing to one person, one thing to another, a third thing to a third person. And so you're never quite sure what's really going on with Jackson. And Biddle tries to nail him down. Biddle goes to Jackson when Jackson becomes president, says, look, I know you have some kind of some problem with the bank. What can we do about that? Is there a way the bank can help your administration reach its goals, like paying down the national debt? And Jackson's really cagey about the whole thing and ultimately misses an opportunity to reform the bank in a direction that he wanted to see it reformed, and also get some benefits from that. So that's 
the genesis of the bank war is really rooted in Jackson and his personality and his vindictiveness and his just duplicity, basically. Which is really interesting because just looking at it from afar, you would think in this era where there's so much discussion about slavery and the issue of states' rights that just if I were to guess what it would be, it would be associated with this issue of a federal institution overseeing something that could be considered something that should be the responsibility of states and the regulatory function of it being cumbersome to commerce. You know, these are the issues that, that struck me when, sure. when thinking about this. And, you know, before I started reading about it, like I thought, well, this has to be what it's about. And yet, like you say, Jackson is personally done hard by the, the collapse. And this retribution aspect is really interesting, particularly because with a 20-year mandate, he's first elected in, in 32, right? Mm-hmm. He has to wait, does he not? Like, he, he has to sit around and well, can't really do much until that mandate's done. I'm sorry, he's elected in 28. Oh, excuse he's me, yes. re-elected in 32. Right, right. So that's even longer he has to sit around. Well, and so... Or can so, he just pass a, pass a law or even through some sort of executive action, go ahead and dismantle this. So there's a couple of things to know about Jackson. First is, I think, to answer your question directly, that going to Congress and having them rescind the charter early would have put the administration in all kinds of legal trouble. Even if he got a Congress that was willing to pass that, um, there's a property right aspect. And I think the courts would have gone after him in terms of trying to annul a contract. Because remember, in McCullough versus Maryland, the Supreme Court had basically said the, you know, the states can't tax this federally created institution. There is case law that says contract in one state is a contract in all states. You know, so the, 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 the courts in this country, particularly the Supreme Court at this time, have taken the view that the government is really there to enforce contracts and that there is a certain level of sanctity of public uh, or of private property. You have to add to that the fact that Jackson doesn't really have a plan B. He knows he doesn't like the bank. Depending on the day, he might like it, dislike it more or less intensely. But there's no plan B. When we get to him making a plan B, it's totally ad hoc and by the seat of his pants, which is also a problem. The third thing I'd like to say about Jackson is, you know, yeah, Jackson's a slave owner and a Southerner, but he is also a passionate defender of the Union. In fact, at one point, his vice president, a guy by the name of John C. Calhoun, is really pushing South Carolina to confront the federal government and resist um, collecting tariff money. And, you know, it looks as though there's going to be a civil war. You know, there are uh, state militiamen marching in the, in the streets of Charleston getting ready to defend the state against what it, it expects is a federal army coming to, you know, enforce compliance. And it's Jackson who gets up and says, you have to follow federal law. I don't care if you don't like it. You still have to follow it. Now, the Jackson administration does, you know, ultimately negotiate a reduction in tariff rates that goes through Congress as a way of diffusing the situation. But Jackson goes on record as saying the union is perpetual. The states have to follow federal law. If they don't like it, they can try and change it. So 
for as much as you would assume Jackson would be a state's rights guy, and in certain circumstances he is, uh, I think, you know, one of the reasons why he has aged so well in historians' perspective is because he does come out very, very firmly in favor of federal law over state law, and in many ways creates precedents that the Lincoln administration is then able to use in prosecuting the American Civil War. And how does that then relate to regulatory function and the governance of commerce? If, sure. if he doesn't like the, the National Bank, then well, who, so- who's doing that? So the National Bank, it's important to recognize that from Jackson's perspective, the, the National Bank is not a government institution. Okay. It is legally a corporation that has been granted very, very specific and unique privileges because it has a federal bank charter. The most important of which is the ability to, to open branches in other states. No other bank in the United States can operate outside of the state in which it's chartered. And as a result, you know, Jackson's complaint is that this bank is, that this is an assault upon democracy because it's an assault upon the principle of equality. It is a corporation that is, to quote Orwell, more equal than the other corporations, these other state banks. And so therefore Congress is giving it sort of a leg up. So on the one hand, you know, that's Jackson's concern. In addition, the bank is implicitly and explicitly using its power and size to regulate the amount of credit in the American economy. And it does that very simply. So nowadays, when we, when you go get a car loan, right, the bank, the the bank where you, that gives you the car loan cuts a check to the car company. That check is payable in Federal Reserve notes, the money that we all use. I mean, you're in Cambridge at the moment, right. so you're using American money. Yes. In this period, what happened was you had all of these state banks issuing paper money against their gold reserves. So if you were to go and get a, a loan for your wagon, they would issue you a loan in paper money. But the paper money would be the Bank of Middletown or the Bank of Philadelphia or the Bank of Ottawa. And so if I were to then take a trip from Philadelphia to Ottawa with a bank with a wad of Philadelphia banknotes, those notes would have less value. They could buy less in Ottawa because of the cost of transporting them back to Philadelphia to get the gold because of, you know, whatever the perception of, you know, uh, the creditworthiness of the Bank of Philadelphia. So you have all of these different things and you have hundreds of different currencies circulating whose value is impossible to determine because it fluctuates both based on geography and based on the relative perception of the bank. The Bank of the United States, of course, is getting paid in all of these different currencies. You know, if you're a merchant, you're paying your tariff duties in Bank of Philadelphia notes and Bank of Middletown notes, etc. And so the, bank, the, the various branches of the Bank of the United States are collecting these notes and then deciding, okay, are we going to send these back to the Bank of Middletown for gold? Are we going to send these back to the Bank of Philadelphia for gold? You know, if you send back thousands upon thousands of these banknotes, what you might find out is the Bank of Middletown doesn't have any gold back them. And so that bank collapses. So that's an incredible power 
to have over these state banks because you essentially have life and death control over how much gold reserves they're going to have, if they're going to have gold reserves, and you can play favorites. Maybe you know the Bank of Philadelphia is a little strapped this week, so you don't redeem its notes. Whereas you don't really like the Bank of Middletown because you think that their practices are scummy, so you do turn their notes in. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so as a result, this non-governmental institution that has these special privileges is also the one making the decision which state banks survive, which state banks collapse. Mm. And if you have someone who's a partisan, and Jackson believes everybody's a partisan, right. you know, maybe you have a, a, a Whig who's running the bank who decides, I'm going to take down all of the Democratic state banks. That's a very scary prospect for Jackson. So Jackson's concerns about the Bank of the United States are less about states' rights than they are about the fact that it's an affront to equality, it's an affront to democracy, it seems to be about enriching the wealthiest portions of the population, and the fact that it's unaccountable to the people and yet exercises so much control about the amount of credit that's available to the average person. Right, and, per and particularly if you say that Jackson's a guy who himself is a vindictive Oh, yeah. And of course, you'd be concerned about other people being vindictive and, sure. and holding personal he, grudges. He, he has the worst right. perspective on other people. You know, it's he doesn't have opponents. He has enemies. Right. And that's and that's the problem. When you see the world through that, you're either with us or you're the devil sort of mentality. Then, of course, anyone that disagrees with you is is doing so for less than noble reasons. Right. And that's how he sees Biddle. And, and Biddle never quite understands that. Really, not until the end does he has has he taken the measure of Andrew Jackson and figured him out. So, how then does this play out? How does Jackson win? I mean, he, obviously, he wins. And if you say Biddle isn't really doesn't really comprehend exactly Jackson's mindset, how does Jackson win? Is it as simple as letting the charter run out and not renewing it? Or is there more of a, a battle between the two of them that Jackson is able to prevail? Yeah, so there is a battle. So what ends up happening is during the first three and a half years of Jackson's presidency, he basically is very vague about what his plan is with the Bank of the United States. Recognizing that the bank is headquartered in Pennsylvania, which is a crucial state for Jackson's reelection. Jackson doesn't want this to become a political issue, and he certainly doesn't want it to become a political issue in his reelection year of 1832. So he keeps kind of jerking Biddle around. By December of 1831, when it becomes clear Jackson is going to run for a second term, the opposition to Jackson, which is sort of just now coalescing into the Whig Party, uh, the, one of the leaders of the Whig Party, come, uh, a guy by the name of Henry Clay, comes to Biddle and says, look, your charter is coming up in March 1836. If Jackson wins the presidency, he is going to be president. He will not sign a recharter. We've got to defeat him. And, of course, Henry Clay's ulterior motive is he's looking for the issue that will allow him to win the presidency in 1832. Biddle, after basically three and a half years of being kind of jerked around by Jackson, is very receptive to this message. But only insofar as his main concern is how do I protect the Bank of the United States? He's not a Whig. He's not a Democrat. He is a nonpartisan technocrat. And it, what he finds so compelling is the fact that Henry Clay basically says, look, Andrew Jackson's a liar. And if he's president in 1836, he is not going to sign this for charter. And so 
Biddle makes the fateful decision in January of 1832 to ask Congress to recharter the bank early. And by doing that, he makes the bank a, an election year issue. This becomes the wedge issue of the 1832 presidential campaign, because now you have clearly identified Jackson and his Democrats as opposed to the bank. Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and the Whigs are for it. And this becomes this, the thing that separates the parties into two clearly defined entities. In fact, Jackson insists on, if you're going to be a Democrat, you're going to be opposed to the bank, and ends up purging the Democratic Party and members of his cabinet over this very issue. Congress ends up passing a recharter bill. It goes to Jackson in the summer of 1832, and just as Henry Clay predicts, he vetoes it. And so as a result, he issues this veto message, and he basically lays out why he did it. Um, when the election returns come in in 1832, Jackson wins a second term. And as a result, really the gloves are off. Because he's purged his cabinet, because all of the Democrats are to a greater or lesser degree opposed by the bank, when Jackson begins his second term in 1833, he takes a much harder line against the bank, and he says, you know what? It's not enough to let the bank die a slow death. I'm not waiting four years. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep writing checks, paying bills um, with our money in the Bank of the United States, but we're not going to put any more money in the bank. And he dispatches his Treasury Secretary. Well, he actually fires two Treasury Secretaries who refuse to go along with this. He ends up picking a third, a guy by the name of uh, Roger B. Taney, and Taney is tasked with finding the state banks that they're going to use. And lo and behold, all of the state banks that he uses are owned by good Democrats, are friends of the administration. Some of them have a financial connection to Taney. I mean, Jackson really creates the monster that he claimed that the Bank of the United States was. Right. This artisan, scummy, you know, kind of thing. He basically creates that monster with these pet banks. And from the beginning, the pet banks are a fiasco. It's like free money from the government. And sure. without the, the, the second bank, you know, as the second bank is being starved of funds, its ability to keep those banks in check really gets much weaker. So these guys begin speculating in all kinds of, of, you know, shady sorts of things, and it leads to a bunch of bank failures, many of which are, are, are tied to Taney and the administration. It becomes a huge political embarrassment, and that only pisses Jackson off more, hmm. because he thinks that somehow Biddle has engineered this. <laughs> It, and it just it just becomes like a feedback loop. It just keep it just keeps amping him up to right. get more and more aggressive. At one point, the Jackson administration, and this is the most cynical thing that I think Jackson does. Jackson says to the Secretary of the Treasury, "Look, tell the bank that we want all of the pension records because, of course, the bank had been responsible for paying federal government pensions." to veterans from the American War of Independence and uh, the War of 1812. They say, Jackson says, tell the bank we want all the records and we're going to suspend the payments because he knows that if he does that, that the Bank of the United States will take the blame, not the Jackson administration. And Biddle, to his credit, refuses. He refuses to turn over the records. He refuses to turn over the money and keeps paying the pensions as long as he can. Hmm. But it gives you a sense of just how cynical and how winner-take-all this whole thing is. But it's interesting, too, that like he creates this thing, and yet he's been emboldened by the election to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And then it just seems to crumble around him, and yet he's still successful. The thing about Jackson is, you know, Jackson's greatest trick is leading office right before, and I mean weeks before, all of this comes home to roost. Because what begins to happen is, as you weaken the federal government, or as you weaken the the bank's oversight of the state banks, it just encourages them to run wild. Mm -hmm. And so they begin pumping credit into the system, cheap money. You know, they just turn on the printing presses. And what that, you know, as it becomes cheaper to borrow money, you get more and more people who take that money and begin speculating in Western lands. And so you get this land bubble, just like we had seen in 1819. On his way out the door, Jackson tries to pop this or tries to deflate the bubble by issuing the species circular, which doesn't really work. In a lot of ways, it makes it worse. It drains the system of coin and makes the economy more dependent upon paper money, which, you know, makes the state banks even more important. Mm. And ultimately, you have a panic in May of 1857. So Jackson leaves office in March of 1857, hands the keys to his hand-picked successor, Martin Van Buren, whose political career is destroyed by the fact that his presidency is consumed by the Panic of 1837 and the depression that follows. So you mentioned this idea of, you know, the, the speculation and, and cheap money. And I think anyone who's listening to this would think early aughts, oh, yeah. 2008. And, you know, as someone who, who studied the period and who was writing the book in the aftermath of all the, the collapse around 2008, what is the connection between, the, the bank war and are there lessons that we can take from that apply it to our understanding of 2008 and also just moving forward with the banking industry in the state that it's in yeah i think i think that there are and i think that's why this book is i mean on one level this book is not about economics this book right. is about american politics and the enduring philosophical and political differences that organize American political parties down to this day. Right. And I would also add maybe the how personalities help govern all oh, of Oh, God, things, yes. Right? Like and, that, that. Yeah. And I think the election of 2016 is a perfect illustration of that. I mean, right. Yeah. When, yeah. When you mentioned that, you know, if you disagree with me, you're the devil, I think we can see that pretty strongly in, in, yeah. in this election. Yeah. This is not an election about, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But in the more narrowly focused economic you know, sense of it, yeah, I think that there's a lot that can be learned. You know, after the bank war, the United States never has a central bank for the rest of the 19th century. And what we end up with is a cycle that about every 20 years has a Great Depression-sized economic collapse. So we're going to see a panic in 1857. We're going to see an economic collapse in 1873. At one point in 1869, a bunch of um, bankers try to corner the market in gold, and they nearly precipitate uh, a collapse. And there are going to be, you know, period, and, and throughout the 20th, the 19th century, debates over what counts as money, what should be money, how much money should there be. These are the most vicious debates in American political life. We don't debate that much anymore. Mm. And we don't debate that because in 1913, the federal government creates the Federal Reserve. And once the Federal Reserve gets up and operates and begins, you know, really to hit its stride during the Depression, 
it's able to moderate the severity of the business cycle. You know, it's no surprise that from 1929 to 1987, we don't have a stock market crash. Mm. You know, it's because we have a central bank. It's because we have this sort of as nonpartisan as possible monetary policy. But I think the lessons that it, that we've learned from the bank war is the federal government, you know, are that the federal government does have a role to play in economics. There's no such thing as the free market. It doesn't exist. Right. If government exists, there's going to be a government role in the economy. And that one of the things that the central bank of the United States did was create a level of predictability, a level of stability, a level of routine that in a lot of ways could have changed decisively the history of the United States. You know, the history of the 19th century could have looked very similar economically to the history of the 20th century, mm. where you have this, you know, relatively stable, you know, economic system that, you know, can create a fair level of equality. Um, you don't have that in the 19th century. And one of the reasons that the Gilded Age happens, one of the reasons that you see this massive divide between the haves and the have-nots is because there is no central bank. And there isn't a whole lot that, and that, you know, the federal government has abnegated its responsibility to regulate the economy. And there are all kinds of negative consequences that flow from that. Now, this is where my political bias is beginning to show. And, you know, these, these people that are listening that are, you know, sitting there with their end the Fed signs are now very, very disappointed. <laughs> um, and they're out there. I mean, I, I get, you know, I get some of them at my events. And, you know, I, you know, when I get to the point of, you know, the last 10 pages where you're like, all right, this is your takeaway. They're much less happy than they are at the beginning of the book. Right, because it goes against the idea of not only the free market, but also the individualism that marks the American culture and American history, that this individualistic spirit of I can do what I want, it's my money, I'm free to take this risk if I want to take this risk. And it sort of flies in the face of that, this idea uh, well, of a central system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's like it's like the. I remember when I took economics as an undergraduate. You know, you're sitting in this macroeconomics class, and they're talking about perfect information. The idea that you plugged into this economy know everything about everything, and so therefore you can make deals with other people. You can enter into agreements on a level of equality. That's just ridiculous. Right. And I think that what the bank war, you know, one of the things that the Bank of the United States does is it takes the guesswork out of how stable is the Bank of Middletown? How stable is the Bank of Scranton? How stable is the Bank of Philadelphia? What are their bills actually worth? You know, the bank, the, one of the nice things about the, the Second Bank of the United States is it issues a paper currency. And that paper currency is worth the same amount of in gold in Philadelphia, as it is in Pittsburgh, as it is in St. Louis, as it is in Charleston, because they know you can go to any of the branches and redeem it for that same amount of gold. And it's the only institution in the country at that time that that's true for. Right. And it, it really just facilitates the commerce. It's it's not dissimilar to the implementation of time zones. Oh, my God, no. Right. Absolutely. Like if you're facilitating commerce between areas, you have to be on the same time. You have to have the same currency or, or at least yeah. the same value or an understanding of the same valuation to make things work. It, it just it, it just doesn't make sense without it. 
No. And in a lot of ways, I think of these, and I don't know, maybe you have a different perspective on this. There is this peculiarly American resistance to that. There is this peculiarly American belief that local is always better, regional is second best, and national is just, you know, you don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But anyone who's ever gotten on a plane in Cambridge and flown to San Diego will certainly appreciate the fact that the paper money in your wallet has the same amount of value and that, you know, the credit card that you're using to purchase something is not going to charge you a fee for changing, having changed currency zones, basically. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I, I think that, I mean, this is what the euro really tried to accomplish. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, when I, I went, uh, I've been to Europe um, multiple times. Most recently in 2011, my, my wife and I went for our honeymoon. And we were bebopping around all different countries in Europe for about three weeks. And it was very, very relaxing to get on a plane in London, fly to Prague, you know, and be able to spend the money to then fly to Krakow and be able to spend the money at par. Right. You know, facilitated trade and you weren't losing a percentage of it at a currency exchange. You know, and, you know, in taking this to more contemporary events, you know, this this periodic British agita about leaving the eurozone to me is just ridiculous again we're getting very political here yeah that's i mean that's okay and i mean you know on a personal note being in the united states for the past seven months has been financially good for me as the canadian dollar has dropped Mm -hmm. um, over the past year it's starting to go up again but there is an ease in just having it having a currency but even just understanding that the value of a canadian dollar is going to be the same you know in boston as it is in philly or in seattle like a centralized understanding of valuation is strikes me as very important sure and the idea i i get the people on the right who say overregulation is bad i i to a certain extent i understand where that comes from but to eschew all form of government oversight, government regulation, just isn't practical if you want to have some sort of a functioning economic system. I agree, and I think that that's one of the lessons of the bank war. You know, these guys, Jackson's great congressional ally in the bank war is a guy by the name of Thomas Hart Benton. Thomas Hart Benton's big political issue was the gold standard. Mm. Only precious metal is money. Everything else is is some sort of scam perpetrated on, you know, unsuspecting individuals. That is exactly what guys like Ron Paul are arguing. Right. You know, we need to get back to the gold standard because that's the only true measure of value. Well, I, I got to tell you, you know, the people that, that think that really need to take a good hard look at what the economy looked like when we were on the gold standard because it was not pretty. Mm. And they are most likely the people who are going to lose if we were to readopt it. Well, it's, it's a really interesting subject, and the book looks great. The, the cover itself, the cover art on this thing is remarkable. Yeah, well, I want to give a shout-out to uh, West Home. They have been amazing to work with on every level, and their, their cover designer did an amazing job. That's actually a political cartoon that they found that I wasn't even aware of, and it's just oh, wow. they... If you're ever thinking about writing a popular history, check out West Home. 
Okay. Yeah, it, it seems like uh, just a, a great company. You've you've obviously had great success with them. So the mm-hmm. book again is the Bank War: Andrew Jackson, Nicholas Biddle, and the Fight for American Finance. And you can find Paul's work at paulkahan.com. That's K-A-H-A-N dot com. Twitter at Paul underscore Kahan. And he also has a Facebook author page that you can go find all his work there. And you're short of, you're just short of a milestone of likes on Facebook. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so hopefully Be we can push you over the like. top. Be my thousandth like. Yeah. <laughs> and may, who knows? Maybe you'll have some sort of a, a gift for that person. I might. I, you maybe. never know. Yeah. Uh, so, Paul Cahan, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been a really enjoyable discussion. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.